Hello, Podicumens. Brett Maddox here once again. Welcome you to another episode of the Podicesis Podcast. Hope that you are doing well. We've got a fantastic episode for you, and we are so excited about this. But before I get into that, as always, we are joined by your best friends in the world, Jim Morrow and Alan Kaysen. Jim and Alan, how are you guys doing? Doing great, man. I'm fantastic. I'm excited about today. And uh, let me just go ahead. I'm super excited about our guest. That's right. We've got a guest. We've got a guest in the house. Special guest. Special guest in the house. This is Dr. David Watson of United Theological Seminary in Dayton, Ohio. Uh, David is an academic, is the academic dean and professor of New Testament at United Theological Seminary. Um, he has authored and edited a number of publications, including key United Methodist beliefs uh, with William Abraham, Wesley, Wesleyans, and Reading the Bible as Scripture, uh, and has written articles for a variety of publications ranging from Journal, journal of Biblical Literature to Weavings to Good News. His most recent book is Scripture and the Life of God, Why the Bible Matters Today More Than Ever, which was put out by Seedbed. He blogs at davidfwatson.me, and he is one of the hosts of the Plain Truth Holy Spirited Podcast. Um, His research interests include theological interpretation of Scripture, the Bible and disability, and church renewal. He is an ordained elder of the West Ohio Conference of the United Methodist Church, and he serves on the Global Leadership Council of the Wesleyan Covenant Association. He's married to Harriet, and they have two sons, Luke and Sean, and uh, your uh, uh, your daughter. Uh, how? Yeah, Sierra. Sierra. Yeah. So um, we are excited to have you, David. And I also know you're part of the publication. Uh, <laughs> Jim's doing the, uh, That's the my sound the, effects. The sound effects. We also know that you are part of the uh, the Firebrand publication. Uh, yeah. That is out as well, and um, uh, we we'll put a link to all of that up on our website. So you're gonna I'd have be to sure. check out every bit of it. The plain, true, spirited podcast. I've got it all wrong. There, it's amazing. <laughs> I listen to it. I just don't look at the title. And Firebrand is amazing. So y'all check it out. We're gonna plug it like forty times. That's exactly right. So David, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much, Brett. I really appreciate the opportunity to be with you all today and to talk about theology. I love to do that. That's awesome. Uh, David is a, oh, by the way, David is a fantastic Twitter follow. Fantastic oh, yeah. Twitter follow. <laughs> so that's how I, I got yep. to, uh, I found out about him was uh, just went through a kind of a, a Twitter uh, thread. I, I found him. I thought, man, this guy right here is on point. So I, uh, so I followed him. So thank you, David, for, uh, for what you do. And at the end of the show, uh, you can tell everybody where to find you on social media and, okay. and, and all that. So, um, so we had a great last episode. Um, some of the uh, uh, biggest response we've had about uh, Providence in our discussion on Providence. And I think a lot of people were appreciative of that. Jim and Alan, were there any kind of loose ends or any comments that y'all had heard that really stuck out to you at all? No, but uh, our last episode was our live cast. Well, I, that's true. That, yeah, that's so, true. I mean, we had that, an awesome time doing our first true. live cast. What a blast. And, uh, yes, It was absolutely. awesome, and I can't wait to do another one like that. But yeah, the episode before that was on Providence, and uh, I think we had a great conversation, generally yeah. speaking, about you know um, God's uh, um, taking care of us and, um, and how he interacts with us in the world today. Yep. And then today we kind of start drilling down um, on on God's providence related to us and humanity. So looking forward to the conversation. I was very thankful for uh, Jonathan Smith, our super fan, our fan friend. He is a friend, uh, (laughs) but super fan uh, uh, for a comment he made about um, how appreciative he was with our discussion on providence, especially about um, divine, how God gives, um, how our, our, our purpose and our worth is found in how God relates to us or how he moves in our lives. Um, yeah. And, and he uh, also mentioned um, just kind of like it's a theological point of argument. Uh, he, he enjoyed some of the conversations we were sharing. Um, we didn't get it from us. We're not humble bragging here, but uh, just to bring back up about how uh, our ability to choose and our free will can be yeah. very well rooted in God's sovereignty. And yeah. those are two conversations that seem sometimes to seem at odds in public discourse or kind of standard discourse, um, but they don't have to be and are not. And so it's kind of interesting as we drill down today in this question of the catechism, how we can further uh, avoid oversimplifying those two conversations. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, so real quick, before we get into it, can I, 
we are going through this Wesley's revision of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. And if you don't mind, guys, I just couldn't help, David, noticing that you seem to enjoy catechism as well. In fact, um, we were looking, you know, key United Methodist beliefs has been on our radar. Uh, some of us have had copies. Others of us bought them today. Um, <laughs> no, but what we noticed is that as you're talking about key United Methodist beliefs, that each of those chapters has a catechism in it. So I wouldn't, would you tell us a little bit about your love for the word and uh, catechism and really its function in the church? You know, before I uh, was a professor, I was serving in a church the United Methodist Congregation in Dallas. And, um, but I, you know, I've been involved in the church virtually my whole life. And it just, it became apparent to me that a lot of Methodist folks didn't know what our beliefs were, or even really that we had any. Right. Um, You know, a a woman at, at the church I served once asked me, why can't Methodists be the people who believe anything they want? And I, I thought, well, where do you even start with that question? Right. Um, the assumptions built into that question, I mean, one of the assumptions at least is that one belief is as good as another. Mm. Um, but Christians don't believe that, right? We, we, we think that there are certain things that it's important to understand about Jesus and about God's saving work on our behalf through Jesus, and if we don't we don't get that right, then we can't appreciate what God has done, and and we can't return love to God for the love that God has shown us. Mm-hmm. So you know the Bible teaches us to love God not just with our heart but with our minds, and so catechesis is part of that. We have to know who we are, right, and what God has done for us. We have to know who God is. That, that's absolutely true. That's one of the things that pushed us with this uh, Podakesis podcast um, project is helping people know, know what it is they believe and why it matters. I mean, that's the big piece to this is how does it actually affect me? I'm, I've always been struck by some of the more ancient catechisms, particularly like the really early ones. Like I would count like the Didache almost as a catechism because it's teaching, it's got some teaching elements to it, particularly about baptism and about communion and, um, and these things. But how even in that very early, uh, that really early community, when they are going through why the gospel matters, like what it can actually do to us, it, it changes not just our mind, it changes our hearts. And knowing what we believe is so important. I was thinking back, we had a voicemail on our live cast, uh, Tabitha Kale, and she mentioned that passage, that verse from Hosea that said they are, is it, they are destroyed by their lack of knowledge. Um, and it, it is so important. What we believe is vitally important. Yeah. Vitally right. important. It, the, 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 the set of claims we make about God and about humankind and about the relationship between God and humankind um, are important in and of themselves, but they're also they also have really profound ethical implications. Right, absolutely. Right? How, how do we live? Right. Um, do we live as if we are our own masters? Mm. Um, what does it mean to be a human being? What is mm. human life? What does it mean that we are that all people are created in the image of God? Mm-hmm. What does it mean to be adopted into God's household as a child of God? What ethical uh, obligations does that place upon me? What's the importance of my body? Uh, what yes. is the importance of anyone's body? Mm. Why do these matter? Uh, what is the importance of creation? And so, you know, all these questions are informed by the set of claims we make about who God is, what uh, what human beings are, and the relationship between the two of these. Right. Absolutely. And that's interesting you bring up that kind of ethical piece to this because now we're getting into in the the catechism in the Westminster shorter catechism we're moving really into the kind of uh meat and bones of of how this affects who we are as a as people like and how 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 are we to respond to God's grace to his providence to his working in our lives and there are is it, there are some very big ethical uh dimensions to this that we will start off with um, today. Uh, We're looking at 
question number question and answer number 12 from the Westminster Shorter Catechism uh, that Wesley put together. He didn't put the, together the catechism that was from the 1500s, but he brought it forth, revised it, and included it in his Christian library to, to train his preachers. And so this question here, we're taking from the general idea of providence that we looked at last time in episode 11, and now we're getting very specific. And the question is this, what special act of providence did God exercise toward man in the estate in which he was created? Man, that's a big question, y'all. Does anybody know the answer? I do. Come on, Alan. I do. Alan. <laughs> Alan always knows the answer. What? I know. I always know the answer. Um, <laughs> when God created man, he entered into a covenant of life with him upon condition of perfect obedience, forbidding him to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil upon the pain of death. So we've dun, got dun, words dun, in dun. there like we've got words in there like covenant. And condition. I mean, think of that, that idea of condition upon condition. We always like to think that God loves unconditionally. He does love unconditionally. But the problem is, is we try to take that God has no conditions on us. And perhaps we're not thinking correctly when we think like that. Uh, uh, David, what we like to do is the Westminster Catechism has some scripture proofs with it. Um, and so we go through the scripture proofs real quickly. And you, you know, being the New Testament professor that you are, we'd love to get your, uh, uh, your thoughts on these texts. The first one would be Galatians chapter 3, verse 12. This is very much a kind of a proof texting piece. So we try it to is. put a little bit of the context behind it. Um, so uh, who's got that, Jim? Uh, Jim, you got it? Okay, go ahead. Yeah, I'm going to pick up Galatians 3. I'm going to read 10 through 14. And this um, this is, I would say this one is conveniently chosen, maybe not fitting for the wider context, but we'll have to see. Maybe, maybe there's some conversation we can have. So here are these words. For all who rely on the works of law are under a curse. As it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. And that uh, being a quote from the Old Testament. Clearly, one who relies on the law is justified before God because, quote, the righteous will live by faith. And here's the actual piece quoted in the catechism. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, it says, the person who does these things will live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by coming the curse, becoming the curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. He redeemed us in order that the blessing giving to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we may receive the promise of the Spirit. And so the piece that uh, Catechism focuses on as the proof is the law is not based on faith. On the contrary, it says the person who does these things will live by them. Right. And when he when Paul's talking about law, he specifically he's talking about the mosaic law that's right not so. not say the law that says the speed limit's 35 right right uh, et cetera et cetera yeah um so yeah, this is yeah, go ahead well and so I, th- I think that the piece that this brings out is uh the the way in which the law requires somebody to live by certain condition um and we could talk more about about the law and such. The wider context of this is to talk about how one who follows the law is not quite, you know, you you aren't quite following Christ, so to speak, the law and the <laughs> right. promise. There's a whole discourse that's going on here. But the point, well taken, uh, Westminster divines, uh, that if we are to uh, live in God according to the law, we have conditions upon us. We live by them. Absolutely. Any thoughts on that particular so I, I was thinking, uh, and then I know, David, you got something to say. I was thinking, too, though, even wider than that is when we talk about the law, we're also talking about that covenant. So that, that word mm-hmm. covenant keeps coming up, that mosaic covenant. And we'll talk more about the covenants um, in a minute. I think for Paul, uh, a lot of times Protestants think that the law is, is bad. And for mm. Paul, he doesn't think that way. Uh, Paul thinks the law is good because everything that comes from God is good. Right. The problem with the law is that it can tell you what's right, but it doesn't give you the power to do it. Oh. Mm-hmm. And and you know, if you look at say Romans seven, I think you know Romans seven. I think it's starting with verse fourteen up to the end of the chapter. 
is what the ancients call speech and character. I think that he's talking of on behalf of sort of unredeemed humanity, okay, in Romans 7. And what does he say? He says, I can know what's right, but even if I know what's right, I don't have the power to do it. Hmm. Now, maybe you have the power to do what's right sometimes. But what he's saying is, if you think that you're going to be made righteous by living in accordance with the law, you're not. Because um, sin is like a cosmic force for Paul. Sin is in the world, and it exerts itself upon all of us. And therefore, um, we don't see the world the right way. So sin, we say sin has an epistemic consequence. We don't think the right way, and we um, therefore don't act the right way. And even when we know what's right, because we can read it in the law, um, we don't have the power to do it. And since the law uh, prescribes certain punishments for those who violate the law, we know that we can't be made righteous because of it. Does that make Mm. sense? Oh, that's absolutely. absolutely. So I think that's what he's getting at in that. And and I really do appreciate what you said about that. Paul, Paul is not, he's not bringing out a, a teaching of do away with the law or that the law is evil. He's, he, even Jesus wouldn't say that he would come to fulfill fulfill the law and the prophets. And Mm -hmm. so there's, there's a, it's almost like the, the law itself needs fulfillment. It's, it's not complete in, unless in Christ. And so that's, yeah, and one of the things to kind of tie in what you mentioned earlier, Brett, and the, uh, David, this is a wonderful insight. I love, uh, I'm going to steal your phrase. It can tell us what's right, but not give us the power to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, that we can so much think that, oh, the law is so much punishment and heavy, and Jesus makes our burdens light. So no consequence, uh, live lawless, we're good. Um, which could help make us kind of buck against this idea of the question, which is that there is, uh, we've got some skin in the game and some things to fulfill, that -hmm. there are boundaries placed on us, even uh, as people of Christ who have, quote, Christian freedom. Um, So it's a neat interplay that while we are, quote, saved by grace, there are still boundaries and responsibilities that the Christian person would have. And so I think that's going to be fun to explore as we get in here. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that, I think I got that phrase, if I remember correctly, from uh, a commentary by Luke Timothy Johnson. Oh, in wonderful. Explaining, yeah, he's, he's top notch. Yeah. You know, explaining why, um, you know, what, what was Paul, he's trying to explain what is Paul's understanding of the law? How did Paul think about the law? And, you know, it's clear from, Romans 7 and other passages also that um, Paul thinks that we just on our own, we don't have the power to live in the right way. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think <clears throat> that's generally speaking, born out in human experience. I mean, you can just look around you and even within the church, you know, even with people seeking God, we don't live in the right way all the time. Right. So, um, but the law is kind of like a codification of the moral order with which God has created the universe. Right. Okay. So the universe is in a morally neutral place. Right. Um, it's not like you have your morality and I have my morality. It's like there is morality and you and I may have the capacity to grasp what it is in various ways. Mm-hmm. But the law is a guide to that morality. Paul says, well, God gave us that as a tutor before Christ came. And before we had the Holy Spirit, now that Christ has come and broken the power of sin, and now that we have life in the Spirit, we don't need that tutor anymore. Awesome. That's good good stuff. stuff. And I think, you know, where we talk about um, not having the power um, um, to to not sin or, or, or comes from our other scripture proof, uh, Genesis 2. Um, um, I'm going to read verses 15 through 17. Um, so the Garden of Eden, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to, to work and to care to, to take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Mm. How rude. I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> That's ridiculous. I mean... 
I mean, you got you have the tree of life, which you can eat from, and you choose to go over here. Yeah. It's like that little marshmallow experiment that was making its rounds with everybody's kids through the early parts of the pandemic. You all see this one? Uh It's like you put marshmallows or candy in front of your kids, then film them and leave the room and see how sweet of an angel they really are if they tell them not to eat it. Uh, (laughs) They almost always will. They absolutely. If they don't, I will. No. Well, I think it's the, um, you know, we talked about the absolute basics of the Christian faith. Um, that question three in there talks about going to Disney World and being told that you can ride all the rides at Disney World, except that one over there that's broken down. And, and if you ride on it, you're probably going to lose your head. And yeah. the first thing we do is we go and get on that ride. Yeah. Um, you know. Surely um, other people will lose their head, not me. Yes, right. That <laughs> sounds a little <laughs> bit like the serpent coming up, doesn't it? That yeah. sounds like fun. <laughs> Well, and what get what we get at in that uh, Genesis uh, two going into three passage uh, is, and we're going to deal with sin on the next episode. Um, so you're going to want to join in for that. This is it a sin free episode. <laughs> yeah, this everybody. is a sin free. <laughs> this is the hour of power here. So we're going to be a sin free. Okay, hold, hold your horses. <laughs> hour of power. So, <laughs> so anyway, uh, uh, but we get into this, um, um, this, um, this, uh, this. These are their consequences that are behind what God is telling us. And it's interesting how when Satan comes to Adam and Eve, that the, the thing that he tempts them with is being like God. And that's ultimately where the issue comes down to is how we see ourselves and what we do with how we respond to this God, to the grace of God breaking, breaking through. I'd, so, lo- I'd love to ask this has always been a question that people bring up is why wouldn't God want people to know or have knowledge of good and evil? And since uh, now I know this is Old Testament stuff, but since we've got a biblical professor here, I'd love to hear a little bit of thought there. Um, why wouldn't God let people eat of that tree? And, and of course, it's just for all of us to bat around for a second, because I get this question a good bit when we read this passage. Well, well, the prior to the eating of the fruit of the tree, there's not evil, mm-hmm. right? Right. And so disobedience to God is the first act of human rebellion against God. And once they entered into that experience of rebellion against God, then the perfection of God's creation is shattered. Mm-hmm. And so... God doesn't want them to have knowledge of evil because at this point in within creation, there's not, you know, no, no human has sinned. Mm -hmm. We can talk about Satan and the angels and this kind of thing, but within the sphere of Eden that God has created, there's no sin. Mm -hmm. It's a perfect creation. And so by rebelling against God in that way, um, it's, it's, it's a performative act that brings evil into the world. It's kind of an ironic meta situation that you will know evil by this fruit will become knowledge of good and evil by the fact that you have eaten it. Yes. And it's not so much that um, people will have the knowledge about, but it's the same way as somebody who's gone through a really difficult experience would say, I know what it means to suffer or struggle. It's uh, I think of it some that way as where it's kind of in your bones now. Um, And so yeah, with there was no evil to distinguish between or even to know an experience until this point. Hmm. What an interesting right. and you you come to you come to know evil by experiencing hmm. evil. So as we move into this question then, uh, a question and answer, what special act of providence did God exercise in in, in towards humanity in the state in which he, they were created? When God created them, he entered into a covenant of life with them upon condition of perfect obedience, forbidding them to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil upon the pain of death. Some different questions come up about from this one question. Um, what does providence that we have, but we talked about last, uh, last episode or in episode 11, what does it actually have to do with human creation? Like what was God's hand in making us? What was his plan? Um, in in making the purpose behind that, and we sort of touched that on episode one, right? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever, as the the catechism says. But then we get into these issues of covenant making, of of conditions that are put upon us at creation, at our creation. Um, and so I wanted to talk a little bit about that. 
um, we, 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 <clears throat> I think sometimes we live in a world or we live like, or we talk about God, like what Bonhoeffer called a cheap grace and those terms of cheap grace of that God has no conditions on us, or at least that's how we would like it to be that God has, we, we can just do us and God will forgive us. And God loves me for who I am. When the biblical narrative tells us that God loves us, he created us, he absolutely did, but there were these conditions that were put on it. So when we talk about covenant making, when we talk about, especially from the Old Testament and uh, moving into the New Testament, uh, these conditions of perfect obedience, um, what do y'all think of that? What comes to mind for for, for y'all? Well, I think for me, I think... um... I think in God's providence, he made us, he made the world, he made life, he made, he put us in, he put us in the garden of Eden. Um, you know, everything was perfect. Um, we were to, uh, as the first question goes, we we're to enjoy him, uh, forever. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was, that was the plan. Um, and you given this great gift, you don't then go say, but I don't like that part of the gift over. I don't like this condition that came with the gift. Like, mm-hmm. um, right. Get all this amazing things, um, which are part of the gift, but I don't like that over there. Right. Um, it kind of reminds me of the whole, I think, you know, um, you mean there's only one way to be saved? Um, you know, Jesus, um, right. instead of focusing on the fact that there is a way to be Thank saved, goodness, there's actually, a um, way. there's actually a way <laughs> yeah. to be right, made right with God. Right. Um, it, it, it's kind of the same deal. It's like, we're focusing on the fact that God simply asked us to be obedient. That is the, that is the, um, that is our response to the gift is, is to be grateful through our obedience. And we failed miserably. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, and, that's and, and that's kind of where the rest of this goes. Right. And, and all, all, you know, all of scripture and, and, and the whole need for Jesus. But um, I guess that's what I get to is like, we, we sometimes focus on the wrong thing we, we you know, here is this great gift. And yet we're focused on um, this one condition over here. That's um, right trying to kind of wiggle our way out of it in sure. some way, you know, explain our way out. Um, uh, Phil Talon and his absolute basis of Christian faith, which is a, which is a Potokesis favorite. Let me just say is yeah. belongs on the, he's a Potok- super fan though. I've never spoken to him. That's true. The Potokesis times great uh, bestsellers list here is what we've got. Uh, uh, the absolute basics of the Christian faith. Anyway, it's just um, on my level. That's why <laughs> we've driven four sales, four sales, four sales. The there Lord. You go. And David, watch out. We're going to drive at least five to a couple of years. That's right. exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, he he quotes uh, um, he talked uh, talks about a teaching that uh, G.K. Chesterton had in his book on uh, called Orthodoxy um, on the chapter of ethic, the ethics of Elfland, and he gives the example here uh, just really summing up what Alan was saying of of um, Cinderella. This is what Chesterton does. He says that uh, against all odds, Cinderella is allowed to go to the ball in high style because of her fairy godmother. Uh, because her fairy, the god, fairy godmother suddenly appears and does some fine magic, gives her a dress, glass slippers, and a carriage. But there is a catch. Cinderella must be back by midnight. And as Chester puts it, points out, it would show a certain ingratitude for Cinderella to complain about the necessity of the rule, given how unnecessary the gift was. Um, he wrote, if Cinderella says, how is it that I must leave the ball at 12? Her godmother might answer, how is it that you are going there till 12? Boom. Chesterton's godmother there. That's fantastic. Yeah, it's a... Hey, hold on. Was that called... What was the name of that? Did you say Elfland? Yes, the Ethics of Elfland is the chapter. All right, y'all finish this up. I'm going to go play some Dungeons. I know, (laughs) No, actually, that chapter, it's I think it's chapter four of Orthodoxy, and it's Ah, actually an incredible chapter i think in that chapter he also talks about how he, we experience god um through um, in our different stages in life like um he talks about um how children experience fairy tales and all that kind of stuff it's really a fantastic read so yeah really good book um but anyway covenant what what else does it's a great job alan i think that's a that's a good point very good point there You're about welcome these- <laughs> I don't know why I felt like I needed to give you that pump just up there, like just, just to give you a little encouragement. Yeah, I appreciate it. <laughs> but um, these conditions, is is God just in giving us conditions like this? Well, I'll pop in one time. I'd love to hear from, from uh, see if David, if, if we have done a good enough job of sparking at least <laughs> an interest here. Um, so we talk about 
providence. Um, and the, that's the core of this question is providence. Uh, and the root English that we hear is always provide. God gave, God gave, God gave. But we also remember that the actual root is to foresee and to attend to. And so in the Westminster Catechism from last time, we remember that it's not only what God provides for people, but it is God's preserving and governance. Mm-hmm. And so it seems as if the way that God from the get-go seeks to order the relationship with humanity and its governance is through this act of covenant, um, which is got, uh, almost a conditional arrangement. This is what I will do on condition of this, and this is what you will do on condition of this. Mm-hmm. And that's how God, that's part of the providence of God in that. I'd love to hear some more. Covenant expresses God's desire to be in relationship with us and desire for us uh, to live lives of flourishing, mm-hmm. okay? So God hasn't given us rules just for rules' sake. It's like Christ says in Mark chapter 2, the Sabbath was made for humankind, not humankind for the Sabbath. And so the the, the sort of rules to live by that God has given us are to promote our flourishing as people, um, to live into uh, the vision of life that God has disclosed to us through divine revelation. Um, God, now, now with regard to the covenant, I mean, there are covenants like Genesis 12. That covenant is pretty one-sided. It's yeah. God just says to Abraham, guess what? I'm going to be your God. You're going to have offspring. It's going to be great. But Walk between these dead animals and it's done. Done and done. <laughs> but the the um, the covenant here isn't like that. And the covenant in Genesis 17, which I think is really the one we think about when we think about the Abrahamic covenant, is not like that either. There's something that people have to do. Because God, I mean, think how can you have a relationship with someone where there is no um, reciprocation, Hmm. right? Relationships require uh, commitment and action by both parties if they're actually to be relationship. Well, God wants to have a relationship with us because God is love. God didn't have to make us. God didn't, isn't, uh, it wasn't uh, necessary to God's being that he make us, but God did make us out of goodness and Hmm. love. And so as a result of that, um, God wants in return from us love. Now, if God doesn't get that, is God somehow diminished? Uh, No, but that's what God wants from us nevertheless, Mm -hmm. is love. And so this idea of covenant creates a sense of mutuality between humankind and God. There's something that God does, and there's something that, that we do, and in that way we can relate to each other. I think that's I think that's right on. Um, that's so good, and we see that uh, this covenant or this relationship making is becomes really the backbone of what we know as the Old Testament, particularly the Mosaic Law. Um, and um, one of my favorite passages that I haven't mentioned in a while, so I need to bring Here it back go. out. If we need to dust it off, it's from Deuteronomy six. Is it Deuteronomy six? Hey, no, Deuteronomy, yeah, that yeah, was I'm, it. Deuteronomy six. <laughs> express oh, okay. life verse. <laughs> okay, I'm sorry. They're making fun because the first like eight ber- uh, episodes, I would bring up the Shema over and over, <laughs> over again. I do that kind of thing too. <laughs> yeah, it's really just the only one I remember. It's the only. <laughs> <laughs> one. Um, well, he's actually written it all over the place, like like the Shema, you know. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, so. yeah, walk through his doorposts. <laughs> the whole thing is there. So, all right, well, let's well, get what you got on your forehead there, bud. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but the, you, you see that this whole idea that uh, Moses is getting at as, as Deuteronomy is is being written right on the edges of the, you know, as they're getting ready to go into the promised land, um, this new generation of, of not forgetting. And that's the thing here is not forgetting, you know, teach your children, teach your children, teach your children, do what you can to, to keep these on your hearts. This idea of loving the Lord, your God, um, as you're, um, as, um, loving the Lord, your God with everything you are. And then some, um, love the Lord, your God, teach your children and teach the generations after one right after another so that they will know 
this relational aspect that is laid out for us in the in the Shema that Jesus will bring up as the greatest commandment, along with the loving your neighbor as yourself. This relational aspect becomes this backbone um, that uh, that holds uh, the redemptive story of God uh, together throughout the entirety of Scripture. Hmm. Yeah, and and God gives us a vision of what the good life is. Yes, I mean God is telling Israel, choose life. Choose life. Yeah. Deuteronomy 30. Yeah, absolutely. He He has memorized two passages, David. Let me give him credit. (laughs) Well done. Well done. Um, If if you live in these particular ways, you're choosing life. Hmm. If you you commit idolatry, if you commit other kinds of acts that are inconsistent with the way in which God has set up in the universe, set up the universe, uh, then you're choosing death. Hmm. God wants you to choose life. Yeah. And so... Um, God, God doesn't give us rules uh, to live by because God is a control freak. Hmm. You know, He gives us rules to live by so that we can know what it looks like to choose life. Hmm. We, we don't have to do that. The person who does these things will live by them. Um, that's, that's right. From we'll live, yeah. So this we'll live, and and then we see in in, in uh, Genesis the the penalty is death uh, if you don't. David, it's like it's like there's two things that just very simple that you mentioned that are one often forgot about. It's like one of the first proclamations is that God interacts with people, like that you, that God even wants a relationship. Right. That alone is a groundbreaking yes reality. And then you said, and I think this is great. For, for us to remember, for people to remember, that as you study and know what Christians believe, you come to this place where you no longer think about these as lists of do's and don'ts and how dare God rob people of freedom right out of the gate, but as pathways to human flourishing. Right. I think, have you, have you all seen, sometimes even, even we ourselves, the Pharisees did it, the church has done it, people think the church does it, is drop rules and restrictions on people. Oh yeah, and, yet, and, and sometimes, yet, sometimes the church does drop unnecessary rules and restrictions, without a doubt. Another. But, but, but most often, I think the kind of guidelines for life that the church lays out to people. This is where I think Catholics are way way ahead of us. I mean, I think something Protestants are going to have to do is develop a body of social teaching the way Absolutely. in which Roman Catholics have. Um. We simply don't have this, and so we kind of shoot from the hip too often and mm-hmm. make decisions in undisciplined ways. Um, and that is that hasn't really served us well. Um, and you can see why all the major Protestant denominations are dividing right now is because we don't have a common vision of what the good life is. Amen. Uh, never, we haven't, as denominations, done the hard work of drilling in down and saying, okay, what is our common social teaching? You know, we might make resolutions. We might have a few pages in the book of discipline on social teaching or something like that. Nothing like a developed body of literature that functions normatively for the denomination. Right. And we, we've got to have something like that. Right. In fact, the irony is that we've almost, as Protestants, rejected it because of, as one of our articles of religion says, it sounds Romish. Yeah, we're going to have to get over that. I agree. <laughs> because... Um, it, it could be, um, lo and behold, that the Roman Catholic Church has done some things really well. Oh, yeah. And while we may not be in agreement with Roman Catholics on everything, I think we have to acknowledge that this is a place where they've gotten way, I mean, they, they are just light years mm-hmm. beyond. They are generations and generations ahead of us. Well, you use a word that I think is important for this, and that it's a normative for them where it is not for us, and um, particularly in mainline denominations uh, Protestant denominations, even non-denominational churches, um, it, it's not normative. Maybe it's because we're still protesting, um, you know, protesting the the evils of of the papacy or something like that from the 1500s. I don't know, but the issue is that it's not normative for us, and it should be because yeah, and- these are these are as Protestants as ones who hold to sola scriptura. These these are these are biblical foundation there's biblical foundations to these that we we're not building anything upon right 
Yeah. And if you'll, and I don't want to take us too far down this rabbit hole, but just notice that uh, I was reading in one of your articles, David, um, and I think it was the Firebrand, why Firebrand article, <laughs> you talked about not having a common language across the Wesleyan right. tradition, particularly right. the United Methodist Church, that we might use the same words, but they don't carry the same meaning. They're homophones instead of um, words right. that we hold in common. Yeah. And you can see how not fleshing out theology means that we might say the same thing. And over the course of years, if I'm not teaching what you're teaching, what you're teaching, what you're teaching, then we end up light years apart. Right, and that's what's happened. Yeah, yeah. we we have we don't have a common vocabulary. We use the same the words we use sound the same. They mean really different things right. from each other. And I think that would be across the Protestant Church, just generally United Methodism. So for our uh, non-United Methodist listener in the International Space Station, this can apply <laughs> to you as well. Yeah. yeah. So one of the things that comes up with this uh, question in the catechism is this idea of um, perfect obedience, perfect obedience. And so doesn't that make your skin crawl a little bit? A little like, bit, but I, we live on the you of when you were grounded as a kid. <laughs> but, you know, I, one of the things that, yes, it does to answer your question. Yes, it does. But one of the uh, things that I think is interesting is that you keep bring we we kept talk about um, you know how can God make these rules all these rules uh, to keep us from living in freedom but we see that um, particularly Paul will talk about this that a true freedom is living in in the in the bounds of the covenant right it's living in the bounds of 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 holiness of in the bounds of 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 the uh, lordship of Jesus Christ and so it, it our ideas of what freedom are. I think are so are built on our sinfulness and not on God's righteousness, and right. so they're two different. Um, they're two different meanings, or they're uh, when we talk about freedom. And so, how do is it even possible this side of the Garden of Eden uh, to even live in perfect obedience? Like, is it something we should shoot for? Is holiness what we would call in our tradition historically holiness? Is it something? That should even be shot for if it's if we can't reach it. Well, I always, I mean, I guess what my dad used to tell me was, if you're not striving for perfection, then what are you striving for? Um, you want to call it holiness, perfection, uh, perfect obedience, whatever. Um, we should all be striving for it, um, even I mean, even if we don't believe that you can. I, I mean, I think we we believe that we can uh, reach perfection, um, or, 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 holiness. But, um, I think there's two sides of this question. What is it, is it possible on this side? Was it possible for Adam and Eve, um, in the beginning? Right. Um, well, this question is being asked pro- before sin comes into like, correct. this is a, you're so, right, right. I mean, the condi- you know, so it was, I'm just throwing that question out. I'm not answering it. <laughs> Well, if they wouldn't have eaten of the of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, right? We would right. I mean, the assumptions there, right? Right. I think. Least, I think so. Well, I mean, Wesley certainly thought that Christian perfection was something that we should all ask God for in this mm-hmm. life, and mm-hmm. that we should utilize the means of grace so that God would be at work in our lives, um, leading us toward perfection. Mm-hmm. Right. Entire sanctification. Every United Methodist elder and yeah. deacon, you know, when ordained, gets asked the question or if whether or not they expect to be made perfect in love in this life. Mm-hmm. And if you don't say yes, you don't get ordained, presumably. <laughs> well, that's the same. I want to, we all cross our fingers on some of those questions. One of them says immediately after seminary, are you in debt as to embarrass yourself? And everybody said no. <laughs> You have to have a high threshold of embarrassment. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, back to your point, David. Um, where, I, I don't remember what I was <laughs> This is what I do. I derail <laughs> theological thinking. We're talking about uh, obedience. You know, it changed, the tone of that changes in my mind when we think about obedience as a pathway towards the goodness of God instead of a barrier to our broken understanding of freedom. Mm-hmm. Well, again, it goes back to our response to the gift of mm. the gift of life. The gift of creation um, is, is, is obedience is walking in obedience. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, it's, 
We do this all the time with our own kids. We set up rules for them because they don't understand the world around them as well as we do. And we don't understand the world around us as well as God does, not even close. There are things, especially when our kids are young, that they can get into. They don't have any idea uh, that it can be dangerous for them. And yet, um, yet it can be. Mm-hmm. It's why, why do we set these things up? Because we're control freaks? Well, probably not. I mean, some parents are. But most of the time, parents just want their kids to live happy and productive lives. You know, and so we, and that's what God wants for us. God, mm-hmm. God wants for us to live into the fullness of humanity for which we were created. Mm. And we can't do that if we're consistently acting in ways that are against the will of God. Mm. If we, we consistently act in ways that are against the moral structure of the world that God has set up. I, I love that. Um, and we need to understand that uh, when Wesley was talking about perfection, when he was talking about sanctification, um, he, he did it with the language of grace, um, that it was never anything that we could obtain or should even try to obtain without relying on the grace of God, God's hand to guide us, his power through the Holy Spirit right. to lead us. Because when we try it on our own, what we're going to end up doing is doing the very thing that our first family did. And that's we're going to try to make gods into ourselves. Well, it'll become an issue of pride. We'll fall. We'll get back into old habits and sins and ways of living. But when we do it with the help of the Holy Spirit, when the Holy Spirit is actually not just helping, but leading, like guiding and, and directing and pulling us. And that, that's the only way to do this is through God's grace. That's why he calls it sanctifying grace. This idea that we cannot do this without God's un, un, unmerited favor towards us. In, in, in this act. We have to rely on God's power on this. And, you know, I, I was thinking, listening to y'all on this is, I keep thinking back to what Jesus says, and even what John would say in his epistle uh, in the first, uh, in first John, is that obedience to Christ and love for Christ go hand in hand. Hmm. Your response, your, your loving response to God's love is to obey him. Um, and that becomes that becomes paramount, I think, in how we live our lives. David, you were talking about um, the covenants. You, you you either choose life or you choose death. It's almost, and you see that also theme that runs throughout the Old Testament of this. Almost there are two ways, right? Psalm one talks about the, the way of the righteous, the way of the wicked. Um, Deuteronomy, the way of life, the way of death. But even uh, back, I'm going to go back to that uh, uh, first uh, first century document, the Didache. Uh, it, there's two ways. It starts off. There's two ways. <laughs> there's the way of life and the way of death. And, right. and it's a way of obedience or a way of disobedience. And the Didache says, and there's a great difference yes. between the two ways. <sighs> yes, that, it, it actually does. It, it's, there's a great, great difference. Mm. Yes. So, yeah, um, there, there, we can live in rebellion against God if we want to. And in our sin, we call that freedom. Yes. Wow. Um, But the question is, what are you free from? Right. Right. So Christ gives us freedom from captivity to sin. What we normally think of as freedom is um, freedom from uh, any kind of restriction on our lives. And most people, I would say no people actually do well living in, in that kind of way. Um, if you want to understand Wesley, you, you cannot understand Wesley without understanding original sin. That's right. Right. It, it is the bedrock of everything for Wesley. Wesley had just as strong a notion of original sin as Calvin did, this notion of total depravity. But the difference was that Calvin believed that the overcoming of total depravity was through an act of irresistible grace in which um, you were justified and you also, um, God God, um, acted in your life in such a way that you could not help but to become a follower of Christ. Let's put it that way, okay? Mm -hmm. Wesley, and only some people got that. Other people didn't. The elect got it, 
and the not elect didn't. Wesley said, everyone, everyone gets some grace, enough grace to overcome the effects of original sin such that you can begin to repent. And if you begin to repent, and you know, in Greek, metanoia, repent, turn your mind around. Mm -hmm. Think about the world in a different way now. See the world in a different way now. Um, if you if you begin to repent, that's when God begins to act in your life and, and to change you. So entire sanctification isn't something we achieve. It's something we can receive. It's mm -hmm. completely a gift, Ooh. like everything else, Grace, yeah. you know, that yeah. comes from God. Yeah, I'm changing my teaching after today. That was good. Uh, I, 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 I admit that I have used the word achieved. I am now, for now on, using the word received. So that's and I'm a, making note of this, your <laughs> one and only humble change. That's <laughs> a, <laughs> uh, do we not in the United Methodist Church and in other liturgies, because we share some common language and say the great thanksgiving for Holy Communion, free us for... Joyful, Joyful obedience. obedience. Yeah. yeah, that sounds like a beautiful thing. Well, well, well and I think one of my sticking points with this, and I think we, I think Adam and Eve absolutely um, could have obey, obeyed and uh, perfectly obeyed. And I think we are called to perfectly obey. And we have something they didn't. We have the Holy Spirit, um, right. and so we have the we we can do it through the power of the Holy Spirit. And um, but. You know, I think so many people, especially in our churches, um, they under they understand that Christ has forgiven them of the sin, but they have not grasped the fact that God has broken the power of sin. Um, that, um, and I, I maybe we're getting ahead of ourselves, but anyways, uh, I think um, Adam and Eve could have perfectly obeyed. I think we can through the power of the Holy Spirit, um, but we sort of we have this all shucks excuse that oh, I'm just a sinner. That's what, you know, whenever we screw up, we say, I'm a sinner. That's yeah. why even I'm, if we're I'm only we, human, I'm only human. There you go. Um, and I would say, yes, you're a sinner, but you're sinner saved by grace, which in that, and through God's grace that we receive, mm -hmm. um, we are given the power to choose not to sin. And so it is possible. Mm -hmm. Um, um, it's not something that we, we try to attain in terms of something that we, like you said, achieve, mm -hmm. but it's right. something that we get to, we're able to receive through the power of the Holy Spirit, um, to live in perfect obedience, joyful obedience that you mm -hmm. breaks the power of canceled right. sin, even yeah. canceled sin has power. But yeah. for some reason it's like, you know, it's this, I don't know whether it's an excuse or it's a, I don't know what it is, but. A, mis a misunderstanding, not fully understanding, and here we are, catechesis, so forth, mm -hmm. um, is that we, the power of sin is broken Christ. One of the one of the tasks for the church in the coming generations is going to be to teach people that God is not just an idea, hmm. that God is an agent, okay? Mm -hmm. I would say, generally speaking, Christians in the West today think of God as kind of like an idea, um, God, God, the notion of God gives weight to my ethical principles. <laughs> Why should I be a just person? Because God, God wants me to. Why should I uh, not steal from my company apart from the fact that I might go to jail? Well, God doesn't want me to do that. Or um, God has forgiven my sins or something like that. But the notion of God as an agent, as God is someone who actually shows up and does things and acts in powerful ways in the lives of people today is almost entirely missing from massive chunks of Christianity today. Now you find it in, in the charismatic movement, you find it in global South Christianity a great deal and the Pentecostal movement. Uh, and I'm not saying that those traditions are without their problems either, but something that the people called Methodist are going to have to reclaim is a notion of divine agency. <laughs> you, you mentioned Billy Abraham earlier in the podcast. Mm -hmm. You know, he's finishing up a four volume work on divine agency, actually. I think volume three is a systematic theology. It would be worth looking into. Um, show notes. Show notes. Show notes. <laughs> Inside joke there, <laughs> We should have filled you in. Uh, but somebody's bingo card just went off. So just let me know. <laughs> But yeah, the notion of God as an agent. 
Right. The notion of God as an agent is something that we're going to have to reclaim. It, preaching is going to have to return to this idea of divine agency. Mm. You know, my my colleague, Joni Sankin here at United, whenever she preaches or whenever she teaches preaching, she wants students to ask the question, what is God doing in the text? There's a notion of divine agency. It's not just what do I do? Hmm. Mm-hmm. It's not just go out and be the hands and feet of Christ or God has no hands but our hands or something like that. Okay. I mean, should you be the hands and feet of Christ? Sure. But you should only be that because God has made you into it. Hmm. You're going to be exhausted. You're, you're going to fail if God hasn't empowered you for the work. Hmm. So the role of the church needs to be the creation of saints. Hmm. The role of the church needs to be um, getting people into connection with God in such a way that they are changed into men and women who will joyfully and gladly go out and do the work to which God has called us. That will be their natural volition. Yeah. It's not just to tell people what's right or tell them to go do things or go build a house or habitat for humanity. And, and that's a that's a good thing to do, but but that's not what Christianity is. Mm-hmm. Right? Christianity isn't about Christianity is about becoming a different kind of person. Hmm. Right? New birth, as Wesley talked about, which he got from from John's gospel, the story of Nicodemus, right? New birth. Mm-hmm. You're born again. You're regenerated is the right. technical term. You have regenerated, re- regeneration, and then God sanctifies you. Mm-hmm. That, is that so really good. reframes the whole, the whole notion, I think, where there's a lot of baggage on some of, the, some of this idea of covenant and boundary and obedience and condition. That's, this has been great. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And uh, we are going to have to uh, begin wrapping up this episode. This has been incredible. First of all, can way I, too I, quick. Can yeah, I go ask ahead. one one question just for brief, David? I just uh, sure. love having you on. So the question comes up at all, you know, what special act of providence that God exercise towards man? So it brings up this whole idea. Why does it matter like how give us a nut just maybe help us in a nutshell and we can jump in i know i'm putting you on the spot why does it matter to say that when god created us he entered a covenant that led us to the flourishing of life or not like why does that matter it tells us something about the character of the god we serve and it tells us something about the nature of humanity Mm. right First of all, it tells us that God is a God who cares for us, who loves us, um, who wants to be in relationship with us and cares about what happens to us in the world, cares about whether we flourish or not. Um, But the second part of it is it tells us that human beings are actually important, Hmm. Uh, that we're not just um, apes with large brains, you know, that some of us might be. We're not just sacks of water that develop sentience. Right. No, that that wow. um, there is something about being a human. God only entered into covenant with humans. So there's something about, about being a human that's mm-hmm. remarkably special and sacred. Mm-hmm. And um the way in which we act towards other humans and the way in which we treat ourselves should reflect that. Hmm. So Christ said, love your neighbor as yourself. So I have to recognize, first of all, uh, my own relationship to God, that God loves me, God cares about me, God wants me to, to flourish. And this isn't prosperity gospel or any of that nonsense. I mean, right, that, that, that there are different ways of flourishing. I don't need a jet to flourish. In fact, right. a jet may prevent me from flourishing. <laughs> right, absolutely. Material, too much material. I mean, Wesley believed this, certainly, that too right. much yeah, sure. uh, wealth could, could very easily prevent you from flourishing. Yeah, I'm going to go cancel my order real quick. <laughs> <laughs> it was a used jet, Jim. I think you're fine. <laughs> you know, the, the, the idea that uh, of our special relationship to God says something about how should we should regard ourselves. Hmm. And how we should regard and act towards other people. This should drive our our ethical vision. Wow. It doesn't a lot of the time, 
Um, like I said before, we've got a ton of work to do. And part of the work, mm. Tim, Tim, Tim Tennant just has a book out that I want to read called uh, On the a Theology of the Body. That's right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. yeah. We've got a lot of work to do there. Like, we've got a lot of work to do in terms of theological anthropology. What is a person? Theologically speaking, mm. what is a person? You know, we, we have these fights over sexuality, over abortion. We're going to have fights over euthanasia and and. Uh, stem cell research and other kinds of issues, but we don't have the basic question in hand. What's a person? Right. Mm-hmm. What does our church say a person is? Right. We can't answer that. We can't answer any of these other questions. That's right. Absolutely. And just as a side note, as we look forward into the future of various new Methodist expressions, I'll speak for myself. One of my hopes is that we are seriously engaging the need to have a body of teaching like this. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's what makes me excited that uh, catechism is coming back, you know, that there seems to be a resurgence of at least interest, a lot of good material. Now, if the local churches would take that and and build that, um, you know, within their their, uh, context, then um, I think we've got a We've got a real uh, a real chance at that, so that's good. Amen. That's real good. Well, um, we are coming to the end of this, David. I just want to tell you, I feel like this is too soon to end this because mm. I feel like I could. You may not, but we feel too soon. <laughs> oh, <laughs> yeah, really enjoyable. Thanks. Oh, so, um, uh, but uh, we are so glad that you are here, uh, David. Is there anything you want to plug? Any books? Any any? Just plug plug you. Just what is it? Tell us where we can find you on uh, social media, on website books that are out there, um, um, all that kind of stuff. Well, um, you know, for those who may have some interest in following me on Twitter, my hand, my Twitter handle is at UTSDoc, U-T-S-D-O-C. Um, if you're interested in some of what I've written on the Bible, uh, I have a book, as you mentioned earlier, Scripture and the Life of God, published with Seedbed. Um, let's see, Firebrand Magazine. Mm-hmm. Oh, yes. You were kind enough to mention earlier, www.firebrandmag.com. Um, the, the reaction of Firebrand has been really good. I mean, people have received it enthusiastically. I'm very grateful for that. Our subscriber list is growing very quickly. Uh, so it seems like it's scratching an itch. So thank, thank, thank you, God, for that. Mm-hmm. And then um, my podcast, which I co-host with Maggie Ulmer and Scott Kisker, Plain Truth, the Holy Spirit podcast. So, um, and you can find that on Twitter at, at Holy Spirit Pod. So thanks for letting me plug those things. Oh, absolutely. Oh, yeah. And we'll plug it on the podakesis.com and also at podakesis on Facebook and Twitter. Uh, and we'll just, uh, we'll keep plugging you. You're a fault. Fo- we follow you on our uh, Twitter handle. So we just like you all the time. <laughs> there. Oh, and we, so, we've only got a hundred more questions. So you are welcome to come back and join yeah, us. Yeah, absolutely. We're, anytime. Yeah. The, the Westminster <laughs> Catechism was not short in the number of questions that it was asking. That's so right. We've That's got right. a ways to, we got a ways to go. Um, um, in our next episode, Podcumans, we'll be looking at sin. Finally, we're there. We know you've been waiting for it. We're going to start dealing oh, with it. And so the first, uh, so we're actually going to, uh, um, I, I haven't told Jim and Alan this, but we're actually going to put two questions together for the <gasps> next episode because they oh, go back. Because <laughs> they go back to back. Uh, question 13, did our first parents continue in the estate in which they were created? Uh, spoiler alert, no, they no. didn't. But... <laughs> And then question 14 that we will also do in the next episode is what is sin? What is sin? And this is a question that Wesley revised actually from the original shorter catechism. Oh, he's so brazen. Yes, he is. Um, And no, he did not take away sin. He just modified the question. So we'll come to that. So that's questions 13 and 14. Um, in our next episode, did our first parents continue in their estate? They, in the estate they were created and what, is sin. Jim and Alan, do y'all have any have, have any closing remarks? I know we got to get going. And all I want to do is say, folks, we are so grateful to have you comment. You can even call our uh, Potokesis phone number now or send a text message or leave a voicemail. We would love to have you on one of our upcoming episodes uh, just to have a comment, a question, or a thought. So follow us on social at Potokesis um, and go ahead and give a call or send a message. We would love to engage with you. And you might be thinking, what is that phone number? Well, that phone number is 
646-735-6679. Alan, how you doing? I'm doing great. I just want to let everybody know that my favorite wrestler still is Sting. Thank you. <laughs> Woo! Thank Praise you the Lord. Go. And Dr. David Watson, thank you so much for yes. being a part of this today. It has been wonderful. I know our Potic humans are going to love it. And thank you for what you do for the church and for the kingdom of God. Thank you guys as well. God bless you. Like I said, you can find us at Potokesis on Facebook and on Twitter. Potokesis.com is our website. Look for us all over the place where you find your uh, where you find your favorite podcast and share us with your family and friends. And until next time, y'all have a great, great day. We'll see you later.